As you see before you, I want to talk with you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. I know that uh, uh, people around the world are celebrating a religious holiday called Easter, which, of which the Bible says nothing. And therefore, from what, from our vantage point here at this church, we, we don't celebrate Easter as a holiday, but we do obviously keep the resurrection in our minds. In fact, much of the things that we're going to do today are about the resurrection. People think if you don't celebrate Easter and Christmas as a religious holiday that you don't believe in the birth of Christ or you don't believe in the resurrection, and that simply isn't true. The problem with both of those holidays, I'm not going to spend time on this, but the problem with both of those holidays is they were developed centuries after the Bible was written, completely according to the the customs and traditions of men, and not according to the Bible text. So what we're going to do later, well, as far as our singing, why it's like it is, and the prayers and the communion, as you'll see later, is direct, we keep this every first day of the week because that's the New Testament. That's because the New Testament directs that. It's not because we have some infatuation with unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. It's because, or because we want to do that. It's because the Lord directed that. And so we don't keep a holiday named after a pagan goddess. And according, according to the phase of the moon, like Easter said, that's why it moves in the calendar. It isn't even kept according to the Passover dates, which we know Christ was crucified at Passover. It's kept according to the phase of the moon, which is a pagan custom. And so uh, that's why you don't see things like you would in some churches today. And so uh, we ask you to think about that and to join with us in what the Bible does direct us to do on the first, first day of the week. But since people are thinking about the resurrection. I thought I'd talk about it. And there's a lot to be said. I've preached about this subject many times, but I want to go back to a basic scripture here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning and talk with you about what's written there in that passage about the significance of the resurrection. And by the resurrection, I think you'll see, I don't mean just some kind of a metaphysical spiritual resurrection. According to the scriptures, Christians are to believe that Jesus Christ literally rose from the dead bodily and was found alive after he'd been put to death. And we'll talk about that death this morning quite a bit. So this is not about a spiritual resurrection or a renaissance or renewal or anything metaphysical in that sense. It's about someone who was put to death as he predicted and rose again as he predicted that he would. It isn't an accident. It wasn't a happenstance or a circumstance. This is what Christ actually predicted about himself and so forth. So here, this is an example of a first century tomb found in, I think, northern central Palestine, not in Jerusalem, of the type that Christ may have been buried in. We don't know that. A lot of people think the tombs that they had at, around the time of Christ in the region around uh, Jerusalem had more solid rectangular shaped rocks that were pushed up against an opening on guides and then the guides were removed and they were sealed in place. They didn't have this rolling rock. We saw one like this um, in the city of Jeru- or near the city of Jerusalem. It, it probably isn't, uh, of course, the one that Jesus was buried in, but it was something like this in a little hut, hillside and cut out that they discovered mm, 50 years ago, something like that. I can't remember the exact dates, but this is not that. But let's go to the scriptures. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can look up here. We'll, the scriptures we're going to talk about this morning will all be up here on the screen. Unless we have some kind of a computer failure again. Um, <clears throat> Paul says here, 
Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. Now, by the way, 1 Corinthians is one of the books that we believe was written first in the New Testament. Maybe not the first, but this book was written, most scholars think, in about the year 55 A.D. So what is that, 22 years after Christ's death, approximately, something like that? This isn't written a long time later. And we're going to notice something, what Paul says about this, that people say today that the resurrection was a fable that was created later on by people who loved Jesus. And so a century or two later, they created these fables about a resurrection. This statement that Paul's going to make here was written within 25 years of his death, probably sooner. And he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is the good news of which I, which I preach to you. I've already done this and which I, you also receive and in which you stand by which you're also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, notice what he's saying here. This is not something I'm telling you now for the first time in 55 A.D. This is something that's already been preached by me and others that I've already told you about that was received before that. So this goes back to the beginning, not a legend, not a superstition to develop decades or centuries later, as some would have you to believe. So Paul's saying, first of all, I received this from the Lord, that Christ died according to our, died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was prophesied that he would do this. It wasn't somebody meeting an untimely death accidentally and saying, oh wait, maybe, maybe he fulfills that scripture. No. This was something that was predicted ahead of time, according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, just like it was predicted, and that he was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, and then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. So he's telling them here in this case, here is the sequence of what we call the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ in this way. And he tells them about the witnesses that they could even go interview some of these people who had seen by over 500 people. Some are still alive, he says. You can, you can go talk to these people if you want to because it wasn't done in a corner or secretly. Now, this is Paul's declaration of the gospel of the resurrection very early on in the history of the church in New Testament times. And we see it borne out, as I'm going to say and show you in a moment, even by people who are not Christians, this testimony is borne out. Whether they believe that Christ is God or not, they bear witness to these things. And he goes on to talk to these Corinthians here in verse 12 of chapter 15. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, he's talking about people like we have people that call themselves Christians today in our society who will talk about Christ, maybe even go to an Easter service. But if you ask them, Can, has anyone ever been raised from the dead? They say, no, that's impossible. There's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. And you know, that's true most of history that we look at. There's no such thing. Now, now, the Greeks, these Corinthians, they believe that it simply couldn't happen. 
was had never happened, simply could not happen. They rejected it outright. They didn't believe that the gods could do this or would do anything like this. And so they rejected, and that's where they were coming from. They had become Christians, and now they're saying, well, there's not really any such thing as a resurrection dead. Now, what he's getting at is the fact that what Paul was also preaching, what the other apostles were preaching is, now that Christ has been raised from the dead, you're going to be raised from the dead. And that's the resurrection they were objecting to. That you're going to be raised from the dead if you're a Christian. They said, that can't happen. Paul's saying, yes, it can happen. And the proof of that is Christ's resurrection from the dead. And he says, because he says in verse 14, talking to us about the significance of this resurrection, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, folks, if there is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead in the first century, there's no reason for you to be here this morning. This is serving no purpose whatsoever that has any meaning whatsoever. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, you might as well go do something else. Lots of people are in Port St. Lucie and Jensen Beach. They're all over at the beach, packed in over there this morning, I'm predicting, and other places, at the park, at their homes, cooking the ham, making the Easter eggs. They're all doing all, and they're not interested in the religious aspect of this because they don't believe in the resurrection. And so there's no point to you doing what you do if there's no resurrection. He says, yes, and we are found, we apostles, are found false witnesses of God. We've stood up and proclaimed all over the known world that Christ was raised from the dead as eyewitnesses of that. And Paul was an eyewitness because he had seen Jesus after his death. We, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, he, in fact, Christ did not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That's the big problem. It isn't that you waste your time going to church if Christ isn't raised from the dead. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, you're still lost. There's no hope for you to be saved. You're still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep, all your loved ones have gone before. All those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're not saved either. You think you're going to see them again, but you're not because there's no resurrection. And if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If you Christians only have hope in Christ in this life and there is no resurrection, you really are a pathetic bunch of people devoting yourselves to morality and doing what's right and abstaining from evil and, and suffering when people do you wrong because you take the example of Christ and trying to do the right thing wherever you go and being honest. You're fools for doing that if Christ isn't risen because it doesn't make any difference. You're to be pitied. When you do, and especially in this time, when they were being physically persecuted for being Christians, you're, you're foolish for doing this if Christ isn't raised from the dead. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. William Lane Craig, who is a known apologist, a very, very good scholar, historian, and if you can get a hold of any of his writings, you do yourself well to peruse them there. They can be sometimes deep, but they're very good and thoughtful, very logical and straightforward. He says here, without the resurrection, of Christ, uh, resurrection, the Christian faith could not have come into being. 
In other words, there'd be no such thing as Christianity without the resurrection. If Christ had lived a good life, said the, spoken the Sermon on the Mount, told the parables, and then got killed by the Romans, put to death, and that was the end of it, there would be no such thing as Christianity as we know it that had rocked the entire world and brought down the Roman Empire and changed the course of history. None of that would have ever happened without the resurrection. He'd just been one other guy lived in ancient times. We might have read about him in history books somewhere, a little footnote somewhere about this man named Christos who taught nice things in parables. That would have been that. But because of the resurrection, everything else changed. The disciples would, would have reminded, remained crushed and defeated men. Even if they had continued to remember Jesus as their beloved teacher, his crucifixion would have forever silenced any hopes of his being the Messiah. The cross would have remained the sad and shameful end of his career. The origin of Christianity, therefore, hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God raised Jesus from the dead. You know, the apostles, are, we could spend two or three sermons talking about this. Here are these men that follow Jesus around for three years and see the things happen, hear him speak. All of a sudden, it seemed to them, they didn't believe it. He kept telling, but they didn't believe him. That Out of nowhere, he's grabbed by the Romans and within hours put to death and buried. They watched him die. And, and they go back to their homes and for three days, nothing happens. And they think it's over. They're crushed by this. And then let's take this scenario. According to the folks who don't believe in the resurrection, who believe that Christianity is based on a myth of the resurrection, then what they did, well, you know, they got to thinking, you know what, let's, let's just fix this problem. I know he's dead. His body's rotting somewhere. Let's go steal the corpse and hide that corpse somewhere so nobody finds it. And then we'll write some books and tell some stories about he was raised from the dead and we're the apostles, and you should do this, and you should do that. In fact, we'll promote this thing that we know is a lie, and we'll let them kill us for it. Eventually, we'll let them kill every one of us for what we know is a lie, because we saw him put to death, and he wasn't raised. We stole the body and hid it, so let the Romans kill us. How does that? How much sense does that make, that people do those kind of things? The fact of the apostles' disbelief and then their belief and the transformation of their lives and their willingness to die for this, especially when the Jews accuse them of stealing the body, is proof that these events are true. It wasn't something that was made up. Humans just don't do those kinds of things. Now, uh, I don't want to spend any time on this, but we could, but we have some other things to talk about this morning. I want to talk about, I know that looked just so fascinating, but it's not. Um, trust me. The, we're going to talk about this morning about the death. He says, the first thing I want to tell you about this gospel is the death. And we're not going to get through all of this. I know that. But I want to talk about a couple of things we haven't spoken on very much before. I want you to see something. Uh, people, people go around with crosses on their neck and tattoos. And, I'm, you know, I'm not condemning that. But I, I really think this symbol of the cross is misunderstood. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that it's just a stake. They don't buy the idea that it's a cross. They say it's just a stake. And sometimes the word was used that way, to be hung on a tree, to be staked out. And the ancient peoples from the Persians down through the Romans used different methods of execution by crucifixion. Sometimes they just had one pole and they nailed you to the pole or they impaled you on it. They just shoved it up through your body and stuck it in the ground and 
hung there, suspended on this tree, as they say. This was one of their methods of execution. Sometimes they nailed you to it. Sometimes they tied you to it and just left you to sit there and starve and rot to death for months at a time. Uh, there were lots of these. But this is a typical portrayal of a crucifix, this famous Renaissance painting of Christ here with his nails through his palms and uh, nails through his feet this way and so forth on a cross. We don't know that that's the way it is. Could be. May not be. I, I've always, even ever since I was a boy, I've always doubted the nails in the palms because having butchered animals and stuff, it wouldn't hold. If they drove this nail in your palm between your bones and they hung you there, it would rip out and you'd fall down. And that'd be a pretty sight, hanging off the cross by the feet, broken. They didn't want all that. They, they wanted to be more, they wanted you to hang up there and scream and do all kind of stuff for a long time. Now, we didn't have much evidence of crucifixion. There was a lot of historical talk about it, sort of. The Romans mentioned crucifixion but it was considered such a shameful thing that they didn't really elaborate a lot about it in their writings. Even though they talk about how many men they crucified when they conquered a certain city, they crucified two or 3,000 men out on the streets. Uh, and the road leading into Jerusalem after the, after the destruction of Jerusalem was lined with these men hung up on crosses, these Jews, for weeks at a time until they, all, until they perished, their bones fell off. But the Romans didn't describe the methods as much as we might like. But we have in the recent years found some evidence of that. Here is a, this was found in 1968 in an ossuary in Jerusalem. The reason for that probably is these people were criminals and it was, it was reserved only for the worst of people that they want to make an example of. And then they wouldn't let the family have the body. The body would just be thrown in a, in a hole somewhere or tossed into a field. They wouldn't let them have the body back to bury it. But here's a case of a man, Yehonahan, uh, that we know of. We don't know much about him, but his bones were found in a box with his name carved on, the, on it in Jerusalem here in 1968 when it was finally all discovered. This is a heel bone. And you can see this nail that went through is bent. And so they think that they left it this way. Most of them, they pull these out of the bone. They left it this way because they couldn't get it out. They, don't, they wouldn't usually want to waste a good nail like that on one of these kind of people, these criminals or, or traitors or whatever they were, so they'd pull these nails out, throw them. And we did. We have, since that time, found another skeleton over there uh, from a different time period with a hole in the heel bone. So we got. they think that's what this was from, too. And so what you find from this, though, it's interesting that um, you see, I don't think it's very clear up there, up there, that they would take a piece of wood and we take a piece of wood, put it up against the heel, and drive the big spike through that, through the heel, and then into the cross, into the post. And so you have this arrangement here at the bottom. You see that's probably what it looked like. And the nail bent in the wood that they nailed it into. So there's the heels were I think I have a picture of this somewhere, but let me let me show you this other picture. This is another picture of this fellow's bone that we discovered, and it changes the way we think about crucifixion. Changes the method of it to some degree. We've learned some other things. You know, as time goes by, people think archaeology is disproving the Bible, and that simply isn't true. 
Archaeology slowly but surely is reinforcing so many different things. Every year that goes by, there are more people found in, in monuments and things like that, even King David, that they than they had the year before. I got a post here, so I think I might have done some lessons on over 50 different people mentioned the Bible. We have literal evidence of them existing. So it isn't something made. And every year that goes by, we have more and more and more of this stuff. Here's another case of a fellow they found in Britain. The Roman Empire extended all the way up into England. And um, this one was found fairly recently. The same thing, a heel bone with a spike through it. They got this guy's whole skeleton. And some interesting things about him. Uh, this guy, that this was crucifixion. Here's a picture of what one guy said crucifixion might look like. With the nails in the wrist down in here somewhere between these two bones. Not in the bone, but between them. Or in that, sometimes they think it's in this space. You take a hold of your wrist right there, you'll feel there's a, there's a hole between these bones. They drive the nail through there, drive it through here. Not in the palms. This is still considered the hands. And they hang them up there. And then they would, uh, of course, he'd be stripped naked. That'd be part of it. They'd strip naked, let him hang there, defecate on themselves, urinate on themselves for a couple of days till they died. That's part of the shame of this whole thing in front of everybody around them on this, on a street, on a main walkway. That's why they did this where they did in Jerusalem so people could go by. Don't we have a count in the Bible when they go, people walking by, coming into from the city or heckling Jesus and making fun of him as he hung there? And then they'd take the feet they might have something for him to sit on, which would, you think that's nice, but it would actually prolong the death. Give him something to sit on actually keeps it from suffocating as quickly and bleeding as badly. So he's already been beaten. A lot of people never made it to this point. We have records, Roman historians, that they didn't make it to the actual crucifixion. They beat them so badly with whips with pieces of glass in them that it stripped them bare down to the muscles and bones on their back and on the front. They tortured them with hot irons before they ever hung him on a cross. They were trying to make an example of this person. This wasn't some clean, sanitized So you wear this little cross around your neck. I'm trying to tell you something. It's been so sanitized for us in the 21st century as to what that cross means. This is so brutal that the few Romans who wrote about it were reluctant to write about that their society was doing this, but they saved it only for the slaves those who are worthless and foreigners. Roman citizens did not receive crucifixion. But then they would nail the heel. Some people think they put the legs together and twisted them around and drove it through this way. Some people think they did them splayed out, spread open, which would display their nakedness more and nail both of them this way. And then the other picture is more. One scholar came up with this. He thinks this is how they did it. Can you see that over there on the left? That they put them on either side and nailed them both sides of it, like this. Now he's got him tied, but most people think these—they don't think Christ was tied. So this fellow wrote this book about this, collating ancient sources to assess crucifixion's ideology, what it means. He concluded that crucifixion was widespread in antiquity, that it was used primarily as a deterrent, it exhibited a primitive lust for revenge that a naked victim displayed in a prominent place reinforced the humiliation of the procedure and the denial of burial compounded such a humiliation and that it was reserved in the Roman period for criminals and lower classes. Now think about what, he, what this historian is saying about what we know about crucifixion as a means of death. 
You know, if God wanted to bring Christ into the world, you think, well, did he have to die? Apparently so. God thought so. But the question is, did he have to die this way? There's a lot of ways to die. As far as the Romans could conceive and ancient history could conceive, this was one of the worst that they could do. Not only because of the physical pain, but to the Romans, the worst thing was the humiliation of this kind of death. The point of this was to bring this person down to the lowest level of esteem that you possibly could. This is the bottom. They wanted to put this kind of person who was crucified at the bottom of every person's opinion as the worst, the most worthless one. And here is Jesus Christ who preached a Sermon on the Mount and healed the blind, being treated to the worst possible death that humans could think of at that time. And that's the whole point. The humiliation of this procedure, not the physical pain that he suffered per se. And then you deny a burial for this person, which usually compounds it. Now, ironically, that's what the Bible makes a point of this, that this rich man, Joseph, went to Pilate and Pilate didn't even want to do this in the first place, you remember. He went to Pilate as a wealthy person, one who's known to Pilate, and said, I'd like to have the body. He had to ask for it because they weren't just going to give this body back to Jesus' family. It was for the dump. It was going to be left there to hang and go to the dump. You didn't get the body back, but Joseph asked for this body, and that's why the Bible makes a point of this, so they could bury him. Of course, in so doing, he unwittingly played a role in the resurrection then. Because Christ wasn't raised up in a dump somewhere, he was raised up in a tomb, everybody knew where it was, and the women were able to go there. And so you see the nature of this whole thing, of this humiliation. We have a scripture that kind of refer, and there's two or three that refer to this in, in Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we also are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besnares us, ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the races before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, counting the shame as being worth nothing, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. This is the meaning of this partly to us today. Besides the salvation is found in this sacrificial death. This is the death of a sacrifice, a lamb that was brought to the slaughter and mercilessly put to death. But the meaning for the ones who were surviving, these Christians in, in the book of Hebrews here, is that they could endure whatever was before them because they had joy set before them also. But they could endure this as Christ endured his suffering and not become weary and discouraged when things go against them. This is the message of the cross. And humiliation is a big part of that. We should not be surprised when Christians are thought little of in society, when they are ridiculed and it's coming, getting worse and worse every year. And we'll continue to do so as our society degenerates further and further. But we shouldn't be surprised about that because Christ already said, if they do this to me, what do you think they're going to do to you? He said it plainly while he was alive to the disciples. If they will do these things to me, what will they do to you? A servant is not greater than his master. So you see this death, how it was carried out, and the purpose of this kind of death often escapes us in our sanitized versions of 
the way that we do things. And, and I think we need to get a little bit of a reality check sometimes as Christians as to what this death meant. Did it have to be this way? I believe it did. I, and I say that because I believe God thought it had to be this way. Christ's death was intentionally carried out in this manner at this time. Ironically, the prophet, the, the law of Moses said you take a man who is a heretic like Jesus was thought to be, a false teacher, one who leads people straight, and you stone this man to death. You take stones and you put him to death. And so the predictions would, be, would have been if they kill the Messiah, it's going to be by stoning. But stoning breaks bones. And the prophet also said in Psalm 22 that not a bone of his will be broken. And so they could drive nails through the bones. They could drive nails next to the bones. Well, that, one of the other victims there that they found in England, they could find on his wrist, the reason I feel that, they found evidence on the bones of the nails scraping the bones as it went by. And they did an autopsy of the skeleton. See, so we know this is how they did this. But they didn't break his bones. In fact, that man hanging, that they found in Britain, his legs had been shattered because they came along with the crucifragium, the crossbreaker, a big heavy blunt instrument, and they broke the legs of these people after a certain while so they couldn't hold themselves up. And the bleeding and the pain, it would speed up the death. Well, isn't that what they were going to do with Jesus? They wanted to get him down before the Passover was over, and so, so the Passover began, so they broke his legs so he would die quicker. But when they came to Jesus, the scripture says he was already dead. Why was he already dead? Well, I'll tell you why he was already dead. He, he, he died. He, he himself said, I can lay down my life, and I died. He, he laid his life down. So no bone would be broken. I think he knew that they'd break his legs. And so he died on purpose ahead of time. So they wouldn't break his legs, just like the prophecy said. So we can talk about the burial. Our time is, I know I spend too much time on that. I've been reading about that this week. In fact, I, I read uh, just this morning of another bone that they, they found with holes all the way through it. Another heel that I didn't know about, found recently. Like I say, archaeology keeps catching up with things that we already know. But when you look in the scriptures in John 19, it says, after this, Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Very unusual. And he came and took the body of Jesus. I think Pilate knew that this Jesus was a special person. I think he knew he just wasn't a common Jew. And that's why they, the Jews didn't just hate common people like they hated Jesus. These leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the important people, they hated him so much. Can't you tell today what you think of a person by who their enemies are? That's sometimes how I vote. I look at who is against these people. And then I vote like I want to, because I can tell by who's against them what they must be like. Okay? But these Pharisees and Sadducees hated Jesus so much. And I think that Pilate knew this man must be a good... Oh, the Bible says he thought he was a good man. He said this is a good man. He knew he was, and so I think that's part of why he gave him this. Gave Arab, Joseph Arimathea, when this important man comes, he gives him permission to take the body. And Nicodemus, who first came to Jesus by night, also uh, was afraid, apparently, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen and spot with the spices that the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden... In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. But when you go to Jerusalem, 
I, I just couldn't believe it when I saw where they said the cross was. And I use the phrase, they say. You know what they say? How we, well, don't they say a lot of things? Well, they say this is the place where the cross was. I mean, and I could throw a rock easily to where they said the tomb was. It isn't even as far as that building, is it, Judy, next door? It's not even that far. They're saying there's where the tomb was. Less than that, to the edge of our property, maybe in the middle of that little pond out there we have, so-called pond on the side. It isn't very far at all from where they say traditionally the cross was to where the tomb was. Hard to believe. And yet, when you go back and read this, it says where was it? It says it was in the garden right there with it. It doesn't make any sense, but they had to make these tombs where they had mounds of limestone they could cut out the rocks. But that's the burial then was done in this very specific way because later you're going to see that these claws that they wrapped Jesus in were all laid neatly aside. The resurrection, then we'll try to finish this up. The Bible says in John 20, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they've laid him. So she must have looked in and seen he wasn't there, could see that he wasn't in there, even though you have to stoop down to do this. And she said, we don't know where they put him. Now she's thinking who? She's thinking the Romans have done this or the Jews have done this. They've come to hate him so much, they won't even let him be buried. They took him out. Maybe Pilate changed his mind and wanted to have the body back. Because he, you know, I don't know. That's what she's thinking. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, that's John, and they went to the tomb. And as they both ran together, the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And so he, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. Now, what does this mean? Why tell that? Here's what it means. The Jews have spread the rumor to this very day that the disciples of Jesus came and stole the body by night. And they quickly ran out of the tomb with the body and hid the body somewhere. Or that Jesus somehow revived himself and in a stupor walked out of the tomb. Somehow he able to push this huge stone out of the way and get out of this tomb when he'd just been, as you see, how he was killed was able to somehow get out of this tomb. This account of these two eyewitnesses says that that didn't happen that way at all. If you steal a body, you don't unwrap it and then fold up all the claws next to it there, neatly lying by themselves. Do you do that when you're stealing a body? I wouldn't. I've never stolen one, but if I do, I won't do that. I can promise you that's not the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to have to have somebody to help me. One of you will have to help me. You know, they say that's who you're, how you know you're, who your friends are. Who you can get to help you bury a body. I mean, no, but anyway, that's who you know you're real. There's a part more to the joke, but I forgot it. Anyway, you see this account. Everything about these accounts, when you think about the real situation, doesn't support the theory that the disciples came and stole the body or the Jewish leaders came and just stole the body or anything like that. This supports the theory that Jesus rose from the dead, was not injured still, was resurrected, took off the head, face covering, folded it up over here on purpose, unwrapped himself and put those things aside and left the tomb. 
And they said to her, the woman, why are you weeping? She said, they've taken away my Lord. and I do not know where they've lain him. And so when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've lain him, and I will take him away. Just let me know where you moved him to. We just want to take care of his body. She didn't recognize Jesus at first. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. I don't think she was looking very carefully when she first spoke. And he said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Now we can say many more things, but I want you to take a look at just a passage or two here. The Bible tells us of the significance of this event. The, the disciples didn't believe this at first. It wasn't like they made up. They didn't believe it. In fact, we even had the story later, even after he appears to many of them, that Thomas doesn't believe because he he says until I see it I won't believe it. So when Jesus does appear to Thomas, he doesn't say, "Oh no, Thomas, you got to have faith. You got to be blind faith. You got to no." He says, "Here, take a look. You can feel the wounds." He holds himself out and says, "Believe." And Thomas said, "My Lord, my God." We don't even have any record that Thomas actually touched the wounds, but Thomas believed because he saw. So this says, Paul speaking here to the Romans, Paul bonds, Romans 1, Paul a bondservant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle separated by the gospel of God, which he promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to this flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We don't have time this morning to consider all of the different appearances of Christ because he made many different appearances and then he ascended back. But I do want to look real quickly at one or two statements about this from historian. And I know our time is late, but let me just go to this. This is a real thick book by Yala Kornfeld, a Jewish historian, well-known Jewish, a modern book books written in in the 80s, 1980s. The Historical Jesus, a scholarly view of the man in his world. He studied the gospel accounts and the other accounts of history. Here's what he said. Now you can listen. I told you this recently when I talked about who was Jesus a few weeks ago. Atheists and other scholars will go back and say, this is all just a myth made up. Jesus didn't even live. Well, this is what a modern historian says, not one from the 1800s, what a modern historian says. Modern archaeology and scholarship have now established beyond doubt that a man known as Jesus certainly did exist in history, that the criticism of the skeptics who denied his existence was ill-founded. Drawing on our knowledge of the authentic contemporary milieu as well as the written records, we are today able to assert beyond a shadow of a doubt that the historical Jesus existed. Jesus died by crucifixion, he says. It was on a secular accusation that he was condemned by Pilate to die shamefully on the Roman cross. Jesus was buried. His body was wrapped in linen shrouds, perfumed with ointments, entombed, that is, laid in a stone slab. We know this from the accounts that are made. 
Jesus' tomb was guarded by a Jewish temple guard, a kind of civil police force. Jesus' tomb was empty three days later. Important historical evidence, quite apart from the Gospels, can be assembled to show that the tomb, at any rate, was empty on Easter morning. Now, he doesn't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead by God the Father, but this Jewish historian says, those are the facts of history which you can know. Now you have to explain this empty tomb. Now we can go through another whole lesson on the different things that have been given, but the scripture is very clear. God raised up Jesus Christ from the dead. By the spirit of holiness, it says, and he declared him to be his son. Now, the real upshot of all this to us, besides the forgiveness of sins, that I want you to get as we close this morning is in Romans chapter 6. Paul here refers to this event and says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with Christ through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You and me, uh, me who are Christian, you and I who are Christians, have this hope of just like Christ came from the tomb with a glorified body, resurrected by the power of his Father, we too will share that same fate. Same thing will happen to us. If you've not been baptized into Christ, you don't share that hope. This begins when we are buried with Christ because of our sins in the water and raised up to walk in new life. That's what Paul's talking about here. Raised up to walk a new life. And it ends with the fact when our bodies are brought forth from the tomb. So the Christian experiences two resurrections. One resurrection from his sinful past. The other resurrection of his body from the world itself to a glorious body. I'd love you to share that same hope that the Christians here have. If you're not a Christian today, we appeal to you to think about that. Maybe we can help you sometime some way today by baptizing you into Christ. If you want to make that confession that you believe he's God's son, you come to the front and we'll do that this morning. Or perhaps we can just study with you from the scriptures about that. We'd be glad to do that. Let us know. Can we help you today? Let's stand and sing.